Hello, everybody, and welcome to Two Guys in a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. And today we have a very special guest with us. Uh, say hello to the people, Bill. Uh, well, hello, people, but I want to know how the heck you came up with two guys and a chainsaw. <laughs> <laughs> this is Bill Obers Jr., a very prolific star of the horror screen, and we're really, really happy you're here. Let's see, two guys and a chainsaw. I think, what did we, we batted around questions, uh, ideas, right, Craig? <laughs> uh, well, Todd sent me a list. <laughs> <laughs> I guess for me that counts as bad ideas around. Yeah, and uh, we narrowed it down, and I, you know, Bill, it's funny when Todd asked me to do this, I was a little bit skeptical. Uh, I didn't uh, have any experience doing anything like this, and I thought that we would just sound like a couple of dorks talking about movies, which we do. Yeah. Um, but so I just kind of went along with whatever he said, thinking that this would never go anywhere, and so uh, we just kind of landed on that name, and here we are, hundred and almost 70 episodes later. I, I think well, I, I really wanted to use the chainsaw sound effect for our intro. I think that's kind of what tipped the scale on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I have not heard that intro. I'll have to. I like that. There's something about a chainsaw, isn't it? There is, right? It's super scary. <laughs> we There are whole massacres. There are whole movies built around chainsaws, right? That's right. And we've, there We've are far too many movies. There are as many bad chainsaw movies as there are bad zombie. You know, I got <clears throat> I get scripts because I'm in the genre. And two years ago, there was a zombie western craze. Apparently, someone had won an award with a zombie western screenplay. So they were coming in from all over the world. And in one week, I got three zombie western scripts, two of which included a zombie sheriff riding into town on a zombie horse. <laughs> I would love to see like, that come movie. On, come on, guys. Thank God. I hope they never got made. <laughs> no, none since then. Jeez. The craziest past, huh? How, yeah. How about now, Bill? Are you getting more? Well, by the way, uh, for our listeners out there, the movie of Bill's um, almost 200 uh, film credits that he has up on IMDb, you should go to his page. It's uh, it's it's really, it's really insane. long. Yeah, um, the one we chose to review today was Abraham Lincoln versus Zombies, so that's why we're talking about zombies today. Um, what is it about the zombie genre, Bill? What is it that uh, are, are is there? Are you seeing a slowdown, or is it just as popular as ever? No, there's no slowdown. Something happened, and hell if I know, because you know I'm an older guy, and so in my generation, there were monsters, and the idea was that the monster was something other. But really, it was us. And yeah. then you get the additional layer that we create the monsters by the way we react to their monsterdom. And this gets back to the idea of traveling carnivals, of exhibitions of human oddities, the Frankenstein monsters, the universal, you know, I didn't ask to be born, Larry Talbot, the original Wolfman, um, the idea of some inner trait that you can't control, all these sort of things. It was more tied to humanity. But then at some point, long after, I was going to say the Atomic Age, but it was long after the Atomic Age, our taste in monsters changed. And I think when The Walking Dead hit, zombies became codified as the monster. And so if you talk to a kid today, the 14-year-old the version of 14-year-old nerdy me, and you say monster, immediately they will think zombie. Yeah. Um, so I so I think that it's there's some underlying cultural. I think it relates to a hopelessness, mm. um, not 
not just a fear of the apocalypse, but a certainty that we are headed towards an apocalyptic end, a lack of hope. That's what I think accounts for it. That's interesting. You know, there are a lot of people who talk about this and frame frame it. You know, they, the same, similar thing about superhero movies, right? Why are we seeing so many big blockbuster superhero movies uh, all across the world? And I've heard people argue a similar kind of thing, that uh, people are a little hopeless right now, and they're so downtrodden, and what they want to see in their entertainment is somebody who can come in and fix it, because at this point we've decided we're unable to fix anything ourselves or come to any consensus about anything. And everybody's fantasy is just for somebody who's better than us and bigger than us, who is pure and good, to come in and, and sweep all the bad away and set things right. So you're talking about kind of like the, the parallel. One is a little more hopeful. One is a little more uh, cynical. And Sure. I mean, one version says that we are already the walking dead, all of us, mm-hmm. because we can't really do anything but shuffle around and consume each other in, in spasms of hate. That's all we can do is eat each other up and then regurgitate the bile, which creates more hate and more walking zombies. That's us. That's our society. In the view of Many people who are younger than me, who I interact with in the business, they are quite certain that humanity has no future, that we are definitely headed for either a robot apocalypse or a zombie apocalypse. And at three in the morning, they have arguments about whether it will be robots or zombies. But definitely nothing good is going to happen. Wow. So these are conversations you're actually having on set with the people in this industry right now? Oh yeah, man! Absolutely. These are this is this is the general mindset of the people who are now creating our entertainment, and I think that this is um, that this is a a built-in problem with our fascination with um, popular culture. You know, for instance, the Oscars are essentially an inter-industry award. They're no different than the Plumbers Association or the National Engineers Association giving their awards, right. but we lend them almost a spiritual religious credence because movies, which are made just to make money, we take them in and make them, they form, I think they fill a a spiritual void in us. And so because of that, we're tied into spiritual culture in a way that we can't easily dismiss these images that are coming to us by groups of people who are creating our entertainment who are hopeless. And so it's, it breeds more hopelessness in us because we're not able to take off the cultural glasses and say, this is something made by a human being just like me, and this is their point of view. And I don't have to accept it because there's the uh, music and the glamour, and it's, it's big, and it's, you know, it gets into us in a way that a book doesn't. We can look at a book and go, ah, it's bullshit. Mm. But it's harder to do that with a movie and we're willing participants in it. So, yes, these are real conversations that I have all the time on set with people. And the wider culture has zero discernment when it comes to what we consume. If it's big and flashy, we eat it. Is that a is that one of the reasons that you you know, I've read, you know, about this movie and, and some of your reasons for for taking this movie. And, and you've done not only so many movies, but, you know, uh, such a wide variety. You know, I was looking at your page and you've done voiceover stuff for kids movies and uh, all kinds of stuff. So what brings you to a particular project? And I guess specifically this project, what was it that? made you say, yeah, sure, I'll take this on. They fired their original Lincoln. 
No, that's not what I've read. What I've read is that you've actually played Lincoln multiple times on stage that they sought you out because of that and and that you agreed to do it so long as you would get to deliver the Gettysburg Address. Is that just bullshit? No, it's so I just added the additional truthful element, which usually doesn't get out there. So what happened was they had a Lincoln who was fantastic and I thought was really great. was very, very tall. I'm not very, very tall. And that's, you know, an essential part of a Lincoln. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so then I got contacted by the producers who knew that I had played Lincoln and they said, well, you know, what if we had you dub some of Lincoln, do some of the voice. So I did some of the voice. Oh, this is fantastic. So, you know, maybe we'll have our Lincoln do our Lincoln and then you'll dub the voice, <laughs> which I thought immediately, well, you know, this is going to be very cumbersome unless you have him off screen a lot. Uh-huh. Mm. And so then sure enough, I got a emergency call from one of the producers at the asylum about 11 o'clock at night and said, can you get on a plane in the morning and come fly to Savannah and play Abraham Lincoln for three weeks. And I was like, I'm 5'9". Okay, in lifts, I'm 5'9". <laughs> <laughs> and he said, you'll stand on a box. And I said, I haven't even seen the script. He said, you can read it on a plane. We really want you to do this. So I said, okay, we'll call my manager and wake him up and you guys talk. And so they did. And the next morning I was on a plane. So I got to set and the director, Richard Schenkman, who was not happy about losing his very tall, wonderful Lincoln, for whatever reason, he looked at me. I said, oh, hello, you know, pleasure to meet you. And he said, you're the new Lincoln? I said, yes. He said, God help us. <laughs> God help us. And eventually we formed a good working relationship. And I, I hope I gave him performance he was happy with, but I did have to stand in a box. So yes, I, I was very eager to do it because I knew that I would never again be allowed to play Lincoln on film because I'm not 6'4", but I thought I could bring the spirit of Lincoln to life. And if it had to be a zombie movie, so be it. They hate you, Abraham. Why must you go to that awful place? Because the Battle of Gettysburg was significant, and it must be recognized. I don't see why. There, there were 50,000 casualties. And the dedication of that mass grave is an event I must attend. I've been asked to speak. What is there of use to say over the bodies of dead young men? It's my belief that our victory there was a turning point in the war. I wish to deliver a message of unification. And hope. I want to say, you know, that it, first of all, you didn't look short. You standing on that box. You looked uh, very tall and commanding. So uh, congrats there. And I really thought that your performance uh, of Lincoln was great. You know, of course, we have seen him portrayed by many people and, and many people have done a great job. But uh, I thought that you really embodied the character. And when I read that, you know, little bit of trivia that you really wanted to read the Gettysburg Address, I read it after I had watched the movie, but that part of the movie really stood out to me. And I, I thought, I, I get it. I get why they wanted this guy. You know, this and you know, it's it's really guy. funny that you say that because um, the Gettysburg Address was only a couple lines in the original script. And Richard Schinkman is also a great lover of history. I said, well, I said, what do you want? Do you want a parody? He said, no, I want the Lincoln on the penny. And we're going to do the Gettysburg Address and they won't let us use it in the movie. But we're going to do it. We're going to shoot it anyway. Let's shoot the whole thing. And uh, and so we shot it, both of us thinking, OK, we just did something just for us and it won't be in the movie. And then they used it. 
Yeah. Uh, it's, that's great. <laughs> you know, I'm starstruck just uh, talking to you about it because I'm so fascinated with the industry and to be able to talk to somebody who has so much experience is uh, really uh, a delight for me. So thank you again for, for joining us and, uh, well, thank you. And, and, you know, nobody ever really wants to talk about the meat of this stuff. And so that's where I'm, I knew you guys would. And I'm really happy to talk to you. You know, the ideas behind it. Not only everybody's only interested in what's it like on set. Mm, yeah. Well, I, I have to say, like, this kind of um, really dovetails into why you're here in the first place, Bill, because, you know, we actually have met and uh, formed a bit of a friendship over the last couple of years online mostly, but yeah. then in person for a couple of days. Before we did this podcast, I would every October for a little while started challenging myself to watch a horror movie a day, and then I would challenge myself to write it up. Uh, that evening and then posted on my personal blog online. And it was just something I was doing because uh, I enjoy horror movies and I don't get to watch them very often. It gave me a month for my wife to say, okay, Todd, you can watch your another horror movie today. And, uh, and then I could exercise my writing chops as well. And so I was visiting my dad, who actually isn't a very big fan of horror movies, uh, but I was with my parents and uh, I had to watch you know, a horror movie that night. And I said, hey, dad, you want to watch it with me? And he said, sure. And so we were flipping around, I think it was Netflix, looking for a movie to see. And uh, Abraham Lincoln versus Zombies, for whatever reason, came up. Uh, and he said, oh, I think I've heard of that. And I said, no, I think you probably heard of Abraham Lincoln versus vampires. <laughs> uh, and, but we sat down and we watched it anyway. And, you know, we watched it and we thought, mm, it's not a fantastic film, to be completely honest. But the thing that really kept us glued to the screen was watching you. <laughs> uh, and I'm really not blowing smoke there. Uh, I didn't know you at the time. But, uh, you know, by the time it was over and we'd seen the Gettysburg Address and this whole thing unfold for it in front of us, we just kind of looked at each other and said, wow, the guy who played Lincoln really elevated that material. And that was the most fun that we had in this movie was just watching Lincoln on screen and your portrayal of him. And that's because of Abraham Lincoln, really not because of me. I tried to bring the spirit of Lincoln. And anytime you you uh, correctly interpret Abraham Lincoln, you're going to have something soulful and interesting. You can mm, hardly yeah. go wrong. Well, you even yeah. kinda, you even got like the voice in there as well. Like, uh, you know, I think for a long time, as, as at least I remember as a young kid, there would be portrayals of Lincoln and he'd have this certain kind of kind of commanding voice. And then later on, I learned that right. you know, it was pretty well known that he didn't have that kind of voice. And so, again, I yes. was impressed that you didn't go with that caricature voice of Lincoln to do this, but went more authentic. We shot hours before the Spielberg came out. And when I saw the Spielberg and heard the voice that Daniel Day-Lewis said, I thought, okay, I did. I can die now because I've done it. I made at least one choice that Daniel Day-Lewis made. We have at least one, one acting choice in common. The voice of Lincoln. Yeah, the voice. I, well, I always think if if a character is already important, don't make his voice sound important. It's always better to counterpoint, you know, come from underneath and make him sound as if he's almost fumbling for his words. Hmm. Well, it, it kind of demythologizes him a little bit, right? It kind of brings him down to earth yeah. and maybe a little more relatable for the audience. And he, and he was. He was like that in life because people would come in with something very important, and he would tell a story about a farmer and a plow and a dead dog and <laughs> stare out the window for five minutes, and then he would say the thing that ends up in the history book. But he didn't just open it up and say the things that ended up in the history book. I think he was as authentically American as anyone in our history books. 
He really was the spirit of America with all of our warts. He was so ugly. He was so unattractive in every way. He wasn't a skilled uh, public speaker, but he had this spirit of this country. So it's a search and rescue mission that we're on then, Mr. President? Something like that. Truthfully, gentlemen, I hold out a little hope of recovering our lost troops, but I aim to learn exactly what fate befell them and to complete their mission, God willing, because their aim was a crucial one. Fort Pulaski must be captured. To our fallen comrades. When you're acting, you know, do you, are you tapping into, are you looking at a character and saying, what bits of this uh, can I especially relate to or what of myself can I bring to the character? Or do you try to, to remove yourself entirely from that? Remove. Um, and better actors than me, I'm not a great actor, you know, but really good actors say, well, you know, we use the as if. It's as if so-and-so was happening in my life and I relate to that. I've never been able to do any of that. I just know that all humans feel the same thing. We're all capable of the same thing. Mother Teresa and Osama bin Laden are essentially the same. They just made different choices, but we all have the same faculties. So I figure, okay, if, if I fully understand the world, the intellectual, spiritual, physical world of this character, then there's no reason that I can't interpret that because we have exactly the same faculties. Um, so that's uh, for me, it's knowledge. The more I know about I don't mean, you know, where he was born and sure that's important. But I right. want to know when we look at the world, we all see it in a very particular lens. What is his lens? And if you can understand the character's lens so well that you can look at a new thing they never saw like zombies and think, here's how they would have seen this threat, then you're getting close. And that's what I wanted to do. Well, I thought that you did a really good job of making the character, you know, very human and very relatable. But, you know, the the Lincoln that I think of when I was a kid, my parents took me to Disneyland or World or one of those things. And you go to the Hall of Presidents and you've got, you know, the animatronic Lincoln up there. Um, and despite the fact that you really gave him these human characters, I still got that iconic Lincoln from you. I think that that was, for me, it, it was relatable because that was kind of the the image of him that I'd had. And maybe that had to do, you know, you talked about his appearance and whatnot. Maybe that had to do with, you know, the, the makeup and, and the design. Regardless, despite the fact that you did bring a personal character to him, you still captured uh, that iconic nature. And, 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 and the iconic nature of Lincoln, his grandeur comes from weakness. It's not uh, – well, Ray Bradbury said this. It's not fullness that gives us strength. It is – it's want. It's emptiness. It's yearning. That's what gives a person in a character strength. And, and I think that's what gives him that grandeur is his inherent weaknesses. And something else that I was interested in, you know, Todd and I have been texting back and forth over the past couple of days talking about this movie. And, and we've both been so excited to do this. But, you know, what what Todd said a little bit earlier, <laughs> and I wouldn't say this, that I didn't think it was a 
a great movie. I wouldn't say that because I feel like that's like, you know, somebody invites you over for dinner and then you criticize the food. Like, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Um, but the the critics kind of expressed the same thing that, that Todd did. You know, I was reading the critical reviews of the film um, and, and they weren't particularly kind to the film, but pretty much everybody said that what elevated the film above some of the asylums, other productions was your performance. Now, how to, as an actor, you know, I'm, I'm a community theater actor. So my experience uh, is far different from yours, I'm sure. But as an actor, how does, how does that make you feel when somebody says something, well, it wasn't a great movie, but he was great in it. I mean, I mean is, is that a compliment to you or? It's embarrassing and it makes you squirm. So you never mention it. You never um, share those sort of comments. And if you make a comment on the review page, which I always try to do if comments are allowed, you mention other people. Yeah. You mention, say, thank you for reviewing, you know, Todd Kuhn's movie, blah, blah, blah. And, and make it, you make it implicitly clear in your comments that the movie's not about you. And that's exactly what Bill did, actually. Um, you, you must have a Google notice that pops up every time you're mentioned online someplace new. I yeah. do. And, and so that's the only way you have read my review. And, uh, and I was shocked. I was really surprised when um, just a day or two later, Bill came on and wrote a comment there. And one thing I've learned about Bill over the last few years is uh, he's a very humble person. He's not very likely to toot his own horn, but uh, he did. He came on and he said, thank you so much. And he pointed out some of the funny things that I thought were funny about the movie and and he said, I'm glad you enjoyed those bits. I thought they were funny, too. He talked about the rest of the cast and how he uh, had a good time. I actually wish that was still up. I was looking for it the other day, and I realized when I moved my site over, uh, I moved my information over to a new version, and somehow that got lost. But uh, through that comment, we had a bit of a back and forth, and we kind of left that at where it was. Uh, but then later on, uh, because I was working at the university at the time and good friends with a man named Randy, who is a professor at the school, who taught a class uh, called, he still teaches a class called Acting for the Camera. I said to Randy, I said, you know, I have this um, this nice little exchange with this uh, really hardworking actor out in Hollywood. You know, he seems like a pretty down-to-earth guy. He seems pretty nice, and we had a nice conversation. What if I reach out to him and see if he's willing to come back and talk with the kids about his experiences in Hollywood, his, his real experiences, like, like from one working actor to these kids, no holds barred kind of thing. And I reached out back to you, and, and you said, you know, Todd, uh, I'll do you one better. I'll fly out at my own expense and I'll do this with and maybe we can put together a kind of um, presentation that I've been wanting to try out for a while uh, about building your own personal brand. And sure enough, uh, Bill came out to our small little Midwestern town and uh, spoke to these students, gave them some amazing advice, did a wonderful presentation for our community there, uh, shared a lot about his experiences in Hollywood. But I also felt uh, did a fantastic job of inspiring others uh, who are going out into the acting world, not just telling them it's going to be hard, which is, you know, what they hear a lot but don't necessarily believe, but also saying it's going to be hard, but here's how you deal with that, here's how you cope with it, and here's how you can use some things to your advantage like I did. And uh, yes. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I just want to thank you publicly for that. That was a wonderful uh, thing you did for our students. And I thought a lot of the advice that you had was really good. You know, you have a very interesting story about how you really took off as an actor who'd been doing stage work for so long and suddenly broke into the movie industry very quickly over a short time and amassed a lot of credits. Yeah, I enjoyed sharing that with them. I like 
challenges. I like nearly impossible things, and I love taking machines apart and figuring out how they work. <clears throat> and uh, uh, the business of entertainment, when I was really rocking and rolling in it, which was 2008 to 2018, um, was a particular kind of machine, and I enjoyed taking it apart and figuring out, okay, how do I do this? What are the components? It was fun. Well, has it changed now? Oh, yeah. Uh, the more digital there is, the more less money there is to be made. Yeah. Um, and so that's why, you know, the movies that I make and that uh, everybody I know in Hollywood makes, the people, you know, family members and people who grew up in the era of theaters will say, hey, when am I going to see you in a movie on a theater? Never. No, that's not true, though. You just worked with Rob Zombie, didn't you? Yeah, okay. There's You do an occasional <laughs> one. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> For the most part, the answer is no, because the industry has in one sense gone underground. 99% of movies now, and that's actual statistic, are watched on um, devices. They're not watched in theaters anymore. And so movies are out there and they're making money, but there's such a proliferation of them. Everybody can make a movie now. And so everybody does make a movie, you know. Um, and so that's why there's plenty of work. But that's why I decided, all right, you know, I did my 10 years of rock and roll and with movies, and now I want to diversify back to stage, do my movies to make my money, and do my stage for my heart. And so that's what I'm, that's what I'm doing now. How you feel about that? You know, do you think that it's just, you know, kind of a natural progression of things? Is it a good or a bad thing? You know, Todd and I review all kinds of movies. We do some movies that have been really successful, you know, uh, theatrically, but really we tend to lean more towards more obscure things. Um, and we've done uh, movies that have been more independent and made by lesser known people in, in the field. And so from your perspective, do you think that it's good for the industry that more people are getting this platform? Uh, maybe people, even people with less experience, or do you think that it is in some way bringing the industry to a, a, a lower level of excellence? I don't know if I'm phrasing that correctly. It's, um, it's, it's great for humanity and bad for business. So it's, <laughs> which means that it's probably balance, a really good thing. And what it's done is the same thing that's happened in all areas. You know, there's no middle class anymore. And it's the same in Hollywood. You either work in low budget pictures or you work in the super blockbusters, which are the only ones that are ever going to movies anymore. And yeah. There's nothing in between. So, um, yeah, it's, it's done the same thing that it, that has happened to all industries. Uh, but for humanity, it's a great thing that a guy in uh, Mumbai can write about his lived experience moment and show it to the world. It's a wonderful thing. It is, although, you know, I'm thinking about what you said earlier about how you said that um, we're consuming pop culture, it, we're taking it more seriously than we used to. These films that are really made first and foremost to make money, uh, and we're yeah. trying to read a lot of artistic merit or a lot of deep thematic material into it when maybe that's not a good thing. And I, I, I also wonder, you know, if another consequence of this is we, we used to have a sort of shared experience as humans, or at least, I mean, not across the world necessarily, but in our pockets of culture, like maybe, say, nations. Uh, you know, we all kind of watch the same one or two TV 
programs, uh, one or two network television programs. We're kind of watching the same news, reading more or less the same newspapers. Uh, and now that it's possible for anybody and everybody, you know, in journalism, for example, to start their own little online news source, for us to be able to put out a little podcast like this for people to listen to, and then for all these movies to be made, and then a, a platform like Netflix comes along, and, uh, you know, who knows how many movies there are in Netflix, but I know that it's curating a bunch for me, and it's throwing at me the ones it thinks I'm going to like. I mean, in some ways, is it is it bad because it's dividing us a little bit more by removing that shared experience? Yes, homogeny is gone, and homogeny was what created Hollywood. There is no Hollywood. It was it was always just an idea. I mean, I lived there Mm. for ten years full time, and every day I'd go out and see the Hollywood sign, and we'd go this. This doesn't exist. This is a monument to an idea. But the idea is possible because we had a shared experience. Things like going to the moon, which are from my culture, you know, everybody was watching that. And it was possible then to have great thematic experiences as humans. And it's not now. I I think also that the celebritization of uh, our culture, the emphasis on celebrities to the point that now it's not even – just who is a bigger celebrity within the celebrity world, but we we all want to be celebrities. Everybody wants to be a celebrity. So there's even some jealousy of celebrities, you know. Well, what the hell do they know? So what? They want an Oscar. I did a YouTube video. <laughs> um, and, 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 and yeah, so because of that, there's less of a uh, there's less of a trust and a willingness to join in a joint experience. I do more in the loss of that. The whole idea of cinematic exhibition was that you would with a group of strangers in the dark, experience something larger than life. And now everything about that is the opposite. Mm. Now in isolation and not in the dark, you experience on the go, wherever you are, and you experience something that's small enough to fit in the palm of your hand. Yeah. Yeah. How do you feel about that notion of celebrity? I mean, I've met, I suppose, a couple of celebrities in my life, but this is certainly uh, the most expansive conversation that I've had with somebody who, with 200 credits on your IMDb page, that I would consider a celebrity. And you've worked with, you know, Rob Zombie, you've worked with Jamie Lee Curtis, some of the biggest names in horror and in celebrity culture in general like what are your do you feel like a celebrity and how does that whole culture how do you feel about that well what are you celebrated for that's what makes you you can feel celebrated and if you're celebrated for something that you have legitimately worked your ass off and you've done what you think is good laudable work then it's fine to be celebrated but a celebrity that's just a silly concept it's like the it's like the question, are you famous? You know, I used to tour schools all the time when I did stage work. And I was a working stage actor for 14 years. I made my full-time living doing it. And the first thing kids would ask, always, the very first thing, I'd be there to play Mark Twain or something, are you famous? <laughs> and if the and if the answer is no, that it's it shuts down everything. Mm. Um, so, yeah, you meet people like Jamie Lee Curtis, um, uh, Rob Zombie, and I don't think anybody feels like a celebrity. They are aware that their work is celebrated. I'll give you an example of what it's like at the upper echelons. I worked with Hugh Jackman, and we had a scene where I was his boss, and we had a phone conversation. Oh, we had a conversation in the office, uh, face-to-face. Like, he's standing over me at the desk telling me I'm not going to do, you know, I want him to cheat or something. And he's I'm not going to do this. So anyway, they, they shoot the master, which is both of us. Then they shoot his coverage over my shoulder. 
And then they say, well, now we're going to do the over on Bill, so Mr. Jackman, you can go back to your trailer. Hmm. Because you're not in this shot. We're shooting it clean on Bill. And Hugh Jackman says, no, I'm going to stay here and I'm going to feed lines to Bill. I'll sit in the corner. And I said, you don't really have to do that. And he said, if it was me, would you do it for me? And I said, yes. He said, we're in the same business. Let's do the scene. And and I find the same thing with all of the, quote, celebrities that I've right. worked for, Jamie Lee Curtis, Rob Zombie. They're working people and they understand why they're celebrated. So the, that kind of celebrity, great. But it, it's a difference between being celebrated deservedly and just being a celebrity. Sure. And that makes a lot of sense. And, and you know, I, I read that uh, Jamie Lee Curtis was a, a big fan of you. She directed you in an episode of Ryan Murphy's Scream Queens. Is that right? Yes. And um, and I made her laugh so hard that we ruined a take and I was really, <laughs> really happy about it. But I made her laugh because I did exactly what she said to do. <laughs> well, Great. He, hearing stories like that, it makes me happy because it makes me happy to know it confirms what I want to believe, which is that these people are are just people. You know, we do celebrate them and we elevate them to such a high status and look up to them in, in, in so many ways. Um, it's nice to hear that they're, you know, they're just folks. Just like you, should, you, you should never look up to them. I think that's our mistake. You can celebrate that Babe Ruth, a great baseball player celebrate him for being a great baseball player and thank sure. god he didn't live in this era we would think well he's a god and everything he does must be right and i must look up to him why would you look up to jamie lee curtis or me or anyone in the business why would you do that celebrate them for the activity they do that you admire I think it's just because I have so much respect for your craft and and your talent. Uh, again, like I, I've said, I, I I studied theater a little bit in college, and I've continued to do it. I'm all I'm, I'm turning forty this year. I I live in a very small town. Uh, we have a very small community theater. I continue to act, and and I like to do it. And so to see these other people who are so talented at what they do. I so respect that talent and what they do. That's why I look up to people like you. It, it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with you personally, but it's just your craft and your skill that I really admire and respect and that I do look up to. Boom. And that's it. Yes. And I do the same thing for uh, writers and creators and people in fields that I'm interested in. And I do exactly the same thing. I would just never assume that uh, all of their personal traits are laudable. That's sure. not, it's never a good thing. This is a very timely conversation, um, and because this is a, str a question I've struggled with a lot, too. Is it possible to celebrate a person for what they do and still know that there are other things they do that aren't so great? I think as a culture, we're struggling with that right now with the Me Too movement. You know, we, we, we've always known there's this insidious side of Hollywood that most people would like to pretend isn't there, and that's super convenient for those who aren't affected by it. Uh, but for those who are affected by it, you know, it can leave lasting scars. And that's what is being forcibly, finally, you know, pushed up to the forefront. And we're learning that these people, I mean, I hate to name names, but just I'll just give one example. You know, Kevin Spacey uh, is a guy that I would just go and see a movie just because he was in it, because I loved watching him work. 
Uh, and mm-hmm. now, uh, you know, there are these allegations against him. We still don't know if they're true or not, but he's being, um, you know, tested in this regard as to his character. And there's a lot of pressure and a lot of push, like, well, don't watch his movies now. You can't enjoy them anymore knowing who he is as a person. And mm-hmm. I, I struggle with that because I get that. I understand that feeling. And, you know, it's it's kind of rooted in the business world. Like, why would you spend your money to support something uh, that you don't agree with because you know behind that actor is still a person who's who's in, indirectly but you know very real getting money from you by supporting their their work. But on the other hand, uh, you know, like you said, it's like nobody's perfect, and people who are bad people all throughout history, we know we're terrible people, made really beautiful and really wonderful works of art, and that's something that we all have to struggle with. You know, where do you fall on that? Uh, you know, how do you feel? I, I'm having a yeah, hard time reconciling. Not to put you on the spot. <laughs> not, to, not to force you to pin this down yourself. But do you have any thoughts on this? Let he who is without sin cast the first stone is the first thought yeah. that always comes to my mind. And then, too, everybody has their own minds. You have to decide. Um, you know, if it's um, if it's a German filmmaker who supported Nazism, then no, I can't really enjoy the movie. But, uh, you know, then everybody has their own lines where you have to decide. And so, yes, consumer culture, people can decide. But I don't think anybody has the right to say to somebody else, you can no longer enjoy this person's creation because we know an unsavory thing about them. You know, I spent my much of my theatrical career recreating historical characters. And one of them was JFK. Mm-hmm. who I did um, for five years up in Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts for the Kennedy Museum. And Kennedy's um, personal, intimate history is full of very bad choices, shameful choices. And at the same time, his oratory and his actions inspired millions. And so, yeah, I've, I've thought about this for years and years. How do you How do you divorce the two? And I've decided you either have to be able to look in the mirror and say, this is what a human being is, and I'm looking at all of me, and then apply that same standard to others, or you just become sanctimonious and say, they did a bad thing, and I could never do that bad thing. I think there's some empathy involved. Yeah, oh, I, I, I think that's maybe uh, one of the best explanations that I've, I've heard uh, in having this discussion. It brings me to something else that I wanted to ask you about because I learned this first from Todd, but then also in reading about you, I've learned that you are somebody who is very much guided uh, by your faith and your religious beliefs. And I was wondering if that has any impact on your choices that you make uh, about roles that you will take or things that you will do on screen or or things that directors ask of you. How do you marry your faith with your profession? Well, Jesus is at the center of my life, and I mean Jesus of Nazareth, the um, historical teacher, the teachings, um, who he is, the whole metaphor of his life, everything, that's at the center of my soul. And so that's, and and it's always there. Early on, um, on stage, I didn't play a lot of evil people, but on film, my face is, has a rough texture, and so I was equated with malevolence. Mm-hmm. And early on, I had these inner spiritual conversations with what I view as the creator, Father God, and said, you know, I'm being asked to play evil a lot. 
what am, you know, what do I do? Mm-hmm. And what I arrived at was if I'm going to play evil, I'm going to damn well play evil. I want to make yeah. your skin squirm and I want to make you think, oh, this isn't a joke. There's something really bad in the world. There's some rot at the core of the apple of humanity. So that, yeah, so uh, I've embraced it because of that. Uh, I've never asked to play, or rarely asked to play anyone who's essentially good. And that's okay, because none of us are essentially good. Mm-hmm. But there are two things, only two things that I won't do on screen. Lord knows I'll do just about anything and have done. But there are only two things that I won't do. And one is I, I don't say GD. I only mm-hmm. said it once. Because so many people find it so offensive. It's like a slap in the face. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll say five, but I get bored with it. It's so tiresome. It's yep. just such an overused word, but yeah, okay. I'll bargain with you to take as many fucks out as possible. Leave me just one or two for emphasis. Sure, sure. <laughs> but yeah. okay, so, so I won't say GD. And then the other thing, I won't play a corrupt minister. Mm-hmm. And I've turned down three scripts because of that. People who say... I have faith and I am in touch with the creative force of the universe and then do really, really evil things. I know those people exist, but I don't want to add fuel to that particular fire. So those are my only only other two limitations. Other than that, you know, if it's evil, sure, I'll play evil in whatever form, using my body, my mind, my soul, whatever. That's my job. Right. Uh, well, I, I <laughs> that was a great answer, and I just want to say that I have uh, a, a huge amount of respect for that. I consider myself a, a person of faith, too. As an actor, you are pretending to be someone else. You know, it's it's separate from who you are. And right. I, don't, I don't know if everybody understands that, but I do. And uh, I, I respect that you do have your boundaries. I think that's that's amazing. That's great. They're pretty limited boundaries. Yeah, but but boundaries nonetheless. And and I would, you know, I don't know. I've never been put in a position where I've had to make those choices. I've never been asked to do that. But I see things in film sometimes that, you know, I, I love horror films. This is what Todd and I do week to week for the last three years. We talk about horror films. And there are, you know, I can watch people getting hacked up with chainsaws. Doesn't bother me at all. But you put a dog <laughs> in violent situation that really bothers me. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm really bothered by sexual violence. It really bothers me. And I don't, I don't know what choices I would make if I were asked to be put in those positions. I don't think that I could, and not just as a person of faith, but just as a person, I don't know that I could put myself in those shoes and maybe I wouldn't want to uh, because you are, you know, you, you are pretending, but in a way, you know, you are also really trying to embody that truth. And I, I don't know if I would be comfortable doing that in some scenarios. Don't, yeah, you, you're absolutely right. And it stays with you every single role that you do. Now that sounds pretentious. I try not to sound actor pretentious, but mm-hmm. that is the truth. It stays with you, and it's like a very thin layer that you can't ever really scrub off that you've been to this world. And, um, yeah, the world's built up, and they, they accrue over time. That's very true. You're a professional. You know, <laughs> this is what you do for a living. You have honed your craft, and 
Uh, I'm sure that you uh, have a very strong sense of who you are as a professional and and you make those decisions accordingly. Uh, So I just have a lot of respect for that. Thank you. Can I ask along those lines, Bill, you know, I've seen stuff that I kind of wish I hadn't seen. And I'm like Craig, you know, I will, I will, um, I can watch pretty much anything on screen that's fiction. But, you know, especially like here in the era of YouTube, we get to see a lot of stuff uh, that wasn't previously available to us that that's actual real life. Uh, have you ever played a role that has stuck with you so long that you kind of regretted playing it or maybe you wish you hadn't? Yeah, there were two. Uh, one was a movie called Children of Sorrow, where I played a cult leader. The other was Circus of the Dead, where I played a uh, a necrophiliac whose day job was as a circus clown, which sounds humorous, but it was not humorous. <clears throat> and in, in both cases, they were uh, liars within liars within liars within liars, so that there was no truth in them. So that even when they said, now I'm going to tell you the truth, even that wasn't the truth. It was an, an unending, infinite nest of lies, and that is very sticky. That sticks in your mind, particularly when your job is essentially to lie. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you yeah, you're, you're coming from a truthful place, but you are pretending that you're something that you're not. Right. And yeah. to play a person who really doesn't have a core, who just lies, and if that lie doesn't work, they'll tell another lie. Um, that that sticks with you, and uh, both of those both of those movies gave me nightmares. And I know people would say, "Oh, you got a nightmare from being a movie," but you have to live in this. And if you're going to do it real, no matter the budget level, you have to give them the real inner experience of that person, or the camera can tell you're lying. You could, or you could just phone it in, <laughs> but you're not I, that kind I, of guy. <laughs> well, I can't phone it in because I'm not an A-list actor, and I don't get hired to phone it in. Nah. When people call me and say, we want you to do a role, almost always it's followed up by saying, I saw you in blah, blah, and you were so intense. And I know that that's what they want. I'm not allowed to phone it in. I'm not famous enough to film it in. Along those same lines, my uh, freshman year in college, I was cast in a play where I was cast in a role that I could relate to on a personal level, but he was a bad guy. And I felt like I learned something about myself by playing that role. Have there ever been any roles that have been revelatory to you that you learned something about yourself from? Yes, um, a role I did for Criminal Minds in which I played a uh, deformed serial killer, and he was physically deformed because he was a product of incest. My mother was Adrian Barbeau, and my father was Tobin Bell from the Saw movie. Wow. <laughs> Years ago, when they were teenagers, and I kidnapped Adrian Barbeau, and we had this – she's she's amazing, by the way. When you, yeah. when, you put, when you put barbed wire around Adrian Barbeau's neck – and yeah, it's fake barbed wire, but it, it's, it can really hurt you. It's, the points are sticky. Sure. When you put that barbed wire around her neck and you say, is that okay? She says, make it tighter. Let me feel it. I'm like, <laughs> damn. <laughs> this woman is amazing. But the reason that uh, for that movie I was – I felt very vulnerable because um, I had my shirt off with my weird torso showing and they gave me deformed hands and I had a big ugly ear and I I was as physically unattractive as I've ever been in a film and playing this guy whose monstrosity, it was the, the classic wounded monster. And the reason that it touched me personally was because as a kid, 
I was fat. I had bad acne. I was a sissy. I was weird in every way that a boy in South Carolina could be weird. And, um, and, I, and I was in many ways a monster and was treated like a monster. I don't mean that in a self-pitying way. I just mean that, right. you know, in the world of kids, kids are cruel. Yeah. And, and playing this monster reconnected me with that and stripped away a little bit of the ego that working in L.A. had given me to say, uh, you know, you're still, you're still this thing. You're still this monster. You're still this oddity. And that was a soft and touching to reconnect with. You know, I was really disappointed to uh, see that one of the first things I thought of when I saw that Criminal Minds is wrapping up is I was really hoping to see a, re- a revival of your character on a later episode. They didn't know what to do with it. Matthew Gray Gubler wrote it, you know, one of the cast members who played Dr. Reed for years. And Breen Frazier, the main producer, he wrote the script. And so that, that character was very close to their heart. But when the show aired, they got some feedback. Some people loved it and other people said, this is really, really dark. This, this character is too dark for Criminal Minds because Matthew's a horror fan, <laughs> which is why he wanted me. He hired me to do it. So I think they just never knew what to do with it. Well, there's a lot of dark stuff on TV right now. You know, coming back to the zombie thing, you were talking about um, uh, The Walking Dead. That show and zombies in general, like you said, there are some people who would say, and probably rightly so, that the zombie genre didn't really die or go. There was always some people who were interested in it, you know, more or less starting with George Romero's films and going Mm -hmm. up there. But there's no denying it's much more popular over a wider swath of audience right now. You know, it's not like happy stuff. Uh, You know, you alluded to maybe why. But why do you think that zombie movies in particular and all this darkness uh, right now is so popular with such a widespread audience uh, on television? My, I, I think we don't believe anymore. You know, I'm getting ready to play Ray Bradbury on stage. I got the right amazing. from his family to play him. And so Bradbury said this at the end of Fahrenheit 451. One of the characters says, everyone must touch something so that when they die, their soul has a place to live. And it doesn't matter what it is as long as you love something and touch it. And you leave it more like you when you die. Then your soul has a place to go. And a lot of it will be wrong, but just enough of it will be right. And when people look at it, you're there. And that's what Ray thought about his books. But I think that somehow as a larger culture, we've lost the belief that whatever it is, it doesn't matter really what it is that you believe in, but believe that you can personally touch something and make it better than it was. That's a pretty core belief for humanity, and uh, I think the popular culture reflects it. Yeah, gosh, yeah. I, I'm so glad that you're getting the opportunity to play Ray Bradbury because I know that you are uh, a, a huge fan as are as are we both of us have have read you know Bradbury and we have uh, talked about the film adaptation of something wicked this way comes on our podcast um, so I'm really glad that you're you have that opportunity are there any other dream roles that you would love to play before you retire or <laughs> Only one, and that's um, Eric, uh, Phantom of the Opera, because in the, in the book, he was born that way. Uh-huh. He, nobody threw acid in his face. He wasn't burned in a fire. He was born that way, and he was actually exhibited as a human oddity in a circus for a while, and then he was purchased as a freak, 
and traveled around what was then known as the Orient. And that's where he learned these sort of magical skills. And only the Cheney silent version kept that backstory for Eric. And even they, the original version, which is completely lost, had scenes showing him, you know, his origin, and the audiences couldn't stand it, so they took it out. So there are hints of that in the Cheney version, but every other version says, well, we have to find an excuse why this guy is so ugly. Or in Andrew Lloyd Webber, well, he's ugly, but he's also really kind of hot and romantic. <laughs> right. <laughs> we, we seem to have trouble dealing with the fact that we turn our eyes away from things we consider not like us. And the more freakish and not like us, the more we want to turn away. You see a person who has only, um, you know, one limb. They're missing their arms and one leg. Instinctively, instinctively, we turn away because it's so unlike us. Yeah. So for that reason, that's, I, I like to explore that type of, uh, of role. You know, yeah, if, if I had one on my bucket list, it would be that or something like it. Oh, wow. It is such a coincidence that you bring that up because I'm in the middle of that book right now. And my <laughs> wife read it and she passed it to me. She said, Todd, you've got to read this. It's so different from, and, and it's true. You're right. The, the book uh, really deserves a, a, a real adaptation, I think. I think so too. And But we, we don't deal well with that. We, you know, we don't do well with it. There was the one moment in the 31 Frankenstein when the monster reaches up to the light and this look on his face, this rapturous look on his face, and then they shut off the light. Mm. And, and that captured sort of the same feeling. Well, I hope you get the opportunity. And maybe one of our many listeners. <laughs> <laughs> both of well, them. Uh, yeah, both of them can pass you on to some great director. That'd be fantastic. But I just want to say, you know, we're we're nearing the one hour mark, which is where we usually pass off. And uh, this has been, you know, in 170 episodes or whatever, one of my favorite episodes to record. It's It's been very different in format from our other episodes, but it's just been really, really cool to kind of get some insight into not just the industry, but into some personal insight into somebody who has really been immersed in it. And I can't thank you enough for agreeing to do this. It, it means uh, so much to me talking to somebody who has worked with some of the people that I admire most in the world, somebody who I admire just based on the huge nature of your career. Uh, so I, again, I, I just want to express my extreme gratitude. Thank you so much. I thank you. It's been one of the best conversations I've had in a while. These kind of conversations are like uh, fertilizer to me. I, I need them. And so thank you for this opportunity. Oh my gosh, you're so welcome. Thank you so much, right. for joining us. And, you know, Abraham Lincoln versus zombies, go out and see it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's about it's, Abraham Lincoln, and he fights zombies. He does. <laughs> they sleep, and uh, he sneaks by them while they sleep. He has this really badass uh, scythe that switches yeah. out, and he, he chops off so many heads. Remember, Teddy? man divided against himself cannot stand. Yes, Mr. President. Emancipate this! Oh, man. Dude, I love that shot of you. You know, the the shot of you set against the sky with your scythe. Like, if I were you, I would totally have that still framed in my house. I hope you and if you'll 
if you'll notice, I'll say this is my parting thing. When you look at that shot, the scythe is broken because they only had three and I broke every one <laughs> by flinging because they weren't meant to be flung open so violently. <laughs> but every time I just got into it and go, and they go like, Bill broke another one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it worked. Great. Oh, it looks fantastic. You did a great job. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thank you, Bill. And thank you for listening to another episode. If you enjoyed this one, please uh, share it with a friend. You can find us online on iTunes. You can find us on Google Play, anywhere your favorite podcasts are. You can also find us on Facebook. Just search for Two Guys in a Chainsaw. Or you can go directly to our website where you can stream our episodes. Leave us a comment there as well, twoguys.red40net.com. We'll be continuing with another episode next week. Until then, I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. With Two Guys in a Chainsaw. (laughs) 